On this episode of This Week in Linux, we've got some new releases from Firefox, XR Desktop, Herbsluft, Window Manager, and more. We'll also check out two hardware announcements this week, one from Manjaro and Star Labs, and another one which is a DIY open source laptop from MNT. And then later in the show, we'll check out a new Incurses To Do Manager app called Noaf To Do, or N O A F T, we'll get to that. There were reports this week for a large increase for the Linux market share, and Munich is back in the news this week regarding some public code and their usage of Linux. Then we'll round out the show with a bonanza of bundles from the Humble Bundle, as well as a lot, lot more. So all that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNU's. Before we get started this week, I want to let you know that we're doing a Patrons Chat live stream this weekend on Saturday, the 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. I have a link in the show notes for a time zone converter so you can get it in your time. Uh, but we're going to be doing it this weekend where we're going to have a conversation that's going to be like an hour, hour and a half, where patrons can join. Uh, and these are this is a DLN patron chat for anyone who's a patron of Tux Digital or DL itself or any other DLN creator. You'll be able to join us for this weekend's patrons chat at 12 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday, the 16th. So hope to see you there. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, load balancers, integrated firewalls, and so much more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. Again, you can get started with a $100 credit for free by going to do.co slash dln. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up first in the show this week is XR Desktop 0.14, and this is because it has open XR support, and that means some really cool stuff. So first of all, uh, XR Desktop is sponsored by Valve and developed by Collabora. So this is a thing, a project that enables interaction with traditional desktop environments such as GNOME and KDE or KDE Plasma in the VR world. So virtual reality using these desktops. Is that weird? Yes, it is. And it's also awesome. So let's talk about this. So this is actually makes it usable with the open VR. So open VR compatibility means that it has the ability to use any of the uh, compatible heads up display devices that support open VR, like the valve index and the index controllers. There's also some sp- reports saying that it works with HTC Vive as well. And this uh, XR desktop makes window managers aware of VR and is able to use VR runtimes to render desktop windows in 3D space with the ability of manipulating them with VR controllers and generating mouse and keyboard input from VR. This latest release brings the largest amounts of changes yet with many new features and architectural improvements. One of the new features is XR Desktop is now able to run on XR runtimes, providing the OpenXR API, which enables running XR Desktop on a full open source stack with Monado. I think that's how you say that. 
Uh, Im- there's also the improvements. They've said that they have improved and updated the OpenVR backend of OpenVR 1.11, providing full support for the latest Steam VR version. Also completed and enabled in this release is the Scene Mode, where XR Desktop r- renders the full environment in the internal re- Vulkan renderer, in addition to the existing Overlay Mode. Other changes include new settings UI and support for the latest GNOME Shell and KWIN versions. This is available right now for Debian SID, a PPA with Ubuntu 20.04, and also available in the AOR for Arch-based distros. They also say in the future that they have from the FOSTEM presentation that they had this year, early this year in February, uh, where they talked about XR software, and they talked, and this is, uh, I'm sorry, going to totally butcher your name, Luboz Sarneki, the software engineer at Collabora for XR. He says that he's that working on the Monado X Open XR runtime and XR desktop dis, uh, has talked about the future aspects of it and says that virtual keyboard for the Open XR API will be coming. Uh, GLTF loading so that they can load mod- models like a scene or example being able to put a backdrop to the VR desktop. There's also going to be scripting and uh, support for the G3K toolkit, which is a 3D widget toolkit, as well as many other things like 2D toolkit integration and a native 3D UI, font rendering improvements, and all kinds of other stuff that they're planning on doing. This is a really, really cool thing. Having the be able to use your existing desktop, provided that you use GNOME and KDE, for example. I'm not sure how many that actually works with it, but for those are confirmed that they have that have support for those. And it's a really cool idea to be able to use your ex- existing Linux desktop in VR space. Why would you want to do that? Is it is it that is it any beneficial to do it? Is it more productive? I don't know, but it does sound awesome, and that's a reason to do it by itself. So I'm glad to see this work being done because it might not be that useful at the moment that I can think of, but I do think it is awesome and I can't wait to try it myself. I will have to get a VR headset to do that in the first place though, but it does sound awesome. And if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Firefox 76. I'm a big fan of Firefox. I've made that clear many times. I even made a video where I talk about the reasons why Firefox is my favorite browser. It's the top seven reasons or something like that. Be sure to check it out. I have it linked in the show notes below if you'd like to learn more about it uh, because Firefox is awesome. But the every they've changed their release cadence to be more every like four weeks or something. So they're more doing these up, iterative updates and improvements overall and just like the performance enhancements and stuff like that. Rather than having gigantic new features like they used to do in the past where they made gigantic changes. Uh, this is more of an iterative release, but uh, it's still pretty cool because they've added some new features to talk about. So let's talk about those. So Firefox 76 has added a new feature for the Lockwise or Firefox Lockwise, which is a built-in password manager. Now, Firefox has had a password manager for a very long time, but it wasn't the best, and it wasn't really a password manager. It was more like an afterthought, which pretty much every browser has an afterthought for their password manager. However, in this case, they've decided to make a full-blown password manager, which is really cool. So they say that they've also added some extra benefits where Firefox displays critical alerts in the Lockwise uh, password manager when a website is breached. And if one of your accounts is involved in the website breach and you've used the same password on the other sites, it will now prompt you to update the passwords. Also, there's a key icon that identifies when accounts have been considered to be using vulnerable passwords. 
there's also an extension that this is similar to Firefox's uh, Firefox monitor, which, you know, you have the uh, Have I Been Pwned service, which they, you know, partnered with to do uh, letting you know about this. So the Firefox monitor is a service that you can use in conjunction with this that will let you know of any time that a you know, a email has been uh, found in this database. So it kind of does like a combination of your email and your passwords via Lockwise, depending on the breach data, which is really, really cool. Uh, they also have a new automatically generating secure uh, secure password stuff. They they say that this is a much more complex password structure for new for building these generations. And they've also said that they've beefed these up to work with more website signup forms. Not sure how passwords don't work or how generating password doesn't work, but hey, they say it's better, so that's cool, I guess. But yeah, I'm I'm glad to see that Firefox is actually putting in effort to a password manager. Now, my preferred password manager is Bitwarden. I made a video uh, with a collab from uh, Ryan from DOS Geek. We did till we talked about Bitwarden. There's a video you can find on my channel. I'll have that linked in the show notes as well if you'd like to check it out. And I, I think that this is really cool though that they are making it built in because most Password managers built into browsers these days are terrible. I mean, pretty much always, not even just these days, but pretty much always they've been terrible. They've been basic password managers and you really shouldn't use them because they're not that secure. However, in this case, Firefox does seem to be working on improving that, which is awesome. Another thing that they improved on this release of 76 is that they've added some new features to picture in picture. So picture in picture allows you to pop out your video that you're currently watching on YouTube or whatever else. It doesn't really have to be any, any kind of video. It doesn't matter. But when I noticed something that in other desktop environments, not counting Plasma, Plasma actually already has compensated for this. But when you double clicked the picture in picture, there wasn't a way to do a full screen. It just wouldn't full screen. And you wouldn't be able to do much other than move it around. And in order to resize, you'd have to actually have to have a window manager that allows you to forcibly resize it and that kind of thing. Whereas now, no matter what you use, if you just double click it, it will turn it into full screen. So you can pop it out from the website and then move it to a different monitor, double click it, and then it will full screen. Now, this is actually really cool because now I don't have to do it with Plasma, even though it worked fine as well. But if you use it in uh, you know, any other desktop environment, you should be able to use it now. And I think that is great. Because it is very nice to have your, instead of popping out the whole tab, you just pop out the win, the video, move it over to the thing, double click it, full screen, and you can get, can get continue to do work and have that as a side thing. I think it's really cool. And feel free to do that with this show if you want to. You know, have it on, if you do the whole thing about looking in the segment index and skipping around different topics you want, that's cool too. But maybe consider putting it on the side and just continue doing whatever you are doing and have it in the background. That's also fine. Uh, many reasons to do that. There's value in, you know, getting the content and also more watch time for my channel. Uh, yeah. And also for this, uh, the 76 episode or episode release of Firefox is the improvements to audio worklets, which supports, uh, allows for more support and complex audio processing like VR and gaming on the web. This also allows you to join Zoom calls without needing to add any additional downloads or install anything. So that is really cool. There's also done some improvements for Wayland acceleration with the VA API and many more things. And if you'd like to learn more about the latest release for Firefox 76, you can find a link to it in the show notes, as well as the other links that I mentioned as you know, in this particular topic.
Up next in the show is Manjaro Linux and Star Labs. They announced that they have a partnership to make Manjaro-based Linux laptops. So Star Labs has been around for quite a while. I've actually not seen much about them over, over the years, but they seem to be around since 2016 or so. Uh, but here's some information about their company. Uh, so if you haven't heard of them, here's, here's some more information about it. So back in 2016, they say Star Labs was formed in a pub. We all depended on using Linux, all with different laptops, and all with different complaints about them. It always perplexed us that a laptop had never been made specifically for Linux. While Whilst many had been converted to run Linux, they seldom offer the same experience that macOS or Windows users had out of the box. So they say that after a few pints, they decided to make one. They say that we had to build our own, so when 2018 came around, this is skipping a little bit because they, they do try to you know start with like their own ODM thing to get started with it and that kind of thing, but then they started doing this in 2018, they started making their own stuff, and it says that we started making our own laptops, we used a variety of suppliers, design houses, and factories, and it was a six, six months long process of tooling and testing on repeat until two new laptops were born in December 2018. This is the Star Lab Star Laptop Lite Mach 2 and the Laptop Mach 3. So yes, I said laptop, not laptop, because they the models for their laptops are called laptops. And uh, these, there's two, the Laptop Lite and the Laptop Mach 3. So the Mach 3 starts at $745. The Laptop Lite starts at $421. And the specs for these machines are starting with the Lite. It has a 1. gigahertz quad-core Intel Pentium N4200, a screen, an IPS display at 1080p that is 11.6 inches. It has RAM that is 8 gigs of RAM for LPDDR3, specifically RAM, with a clocked at 1600 megahertz. They both use 20, uh, 240 gig SSDs, but the laptop Mach 3 has a 1.8 gigahertz quad-core Intel Core i7-8550U, 13.3 inch display, also an IPS 1080p. But it's and its RAM has eight gigs of RAM, but it's using twenty four hundred megahertz LPDDR four memory. Uh, they they do have what's I really like this is because they do have the a specific thing on their frequently asked questions about the Intel management engine. They say that the Intel Pentium processor doesn't have the Intel management engine, so there's nothing to disable. But the Intel management engine is available on or not available, but is unfortunately on the Core i seven. But they have disabled that by default which I think is really cool. So it is probably worth noting that the 8550U is a few a couple years old. It's the 8th generation, and the current version is the 10th generation of Intel. But it's still a pretty decent price and a decent powerful uh, system. So uh, it, de- it depends on you know your perspective of what you want. Uh, but I do like the idea that it's a Linux-based laptop first, and that's what they built it for. And it's, it is not just Manjaro that you can get the laptop with. You can actually get multiple different uh, pre-installed Linux distributions, including Ubuntu, Linux Mint, Zorin OS, and now Manjaro. And you can also get Windows 10 if for some reason you want to do that. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but I guess you could if you want to. One of the things I like about this laptop, again, this is a silly reason to like this, but the instead of the logo for, you know, insert whatever distro or insert, you know, logo keys kind of stuff. It says the word super for the super key. And I think that's fun, even though it's not that important. I, I like the nice touch to it. Uh, but anyway, if you'd like to learn more about the Star Labs laptops or laptops, I'll have links to it in the show notes below. 
Next in the show is another topic that is laptop related, and this is the MNT Reform. This is a DIY open source ARM based Linux laptop, and it's been in the works since about 2017. The open source hardware laptop features the NXP IMX8M quad core Cortex A53 processor and 4 gigs of RAM, M.2 NVMe SSD storage, and also has some interesting replaceable batteries approach because it's not just a you know basic battery system. They have individual battery cells that you can replace. We'll get to that later in the topic. Uh, they, and also some good news about this is that it is now available to, uh, well, almost available to purchase. It's doing the pre-order crowdfunding through CrowdSupply. And uh, it's pretty interesting, but... There's also some issues here with this thing. We'll get to those in a minute, but here's how it's described on the ca- the crowd supply campaign by MNT. They say mobile personal computers are becoming more and more opaque, vendor controlled and hard to repair. Modern laptops have secret schematics, glued in batteries and components not under user control like the Intel management engine or the Apple T2 security chip. Many people decide to take over the built-in cameras of their laptops because they don't know if they can trust tape over, not take over, tape over, because they don't know if they can in, they can trust the device or the software running on it. So they tape over it. Uh, also, they go on to say that the reform goes in the opposite direction. It is designed to be as open and transparent as possible and to support a free and open source software stack from the ground up. It invites you to take a look under the hood customize the document, documented electronics, and even repair it yourself if you like. The Reform laptop has no built-in surveillance technologies, cameras, or microphones, so you can be confident that we will never spy on you. Built not around Intel technology, but the NXP IMX8M, which is a 64-bit core Cortex A53 processor that is ARM. So much to say there. The Reform has a much simpler architecture than conventional laptops. This simplicity also makes it for a more pleasant developer experience. End quote. So, that all sounds great, right? So let's get to the stuff that is not so good. And that is the starting price is, well, let's say gigantic. It's gigantic. So the DIY kit that does not come with storage is $999. That's $1,000. And the also it also they have other tiers for a more complete version. This is an assembled system that comes with 256 gigabytes of NVMe storage, and this one costs $1,300, but does not come with Wi-Fi. If you want the Wi-Fi, that that's the max edition, and also you get instead of 256 gigabytes, you have one terabyte NVMe SSD and an MPCIe Wi-Fi card for $1,500, so $1,500. Now, this is a fairly expensive laptop. It's also $1,000 to build it yourself. And I just don't... And it's an ARM-based laptop, so it's not that powerful. I mean, it's cool that it's open source and open hardware and all of that. I really love that part. But $1,500 before you get Wi-Fi is just kind of... It's kind of much. Also, the no camera, no microphone as a selling point. I mean, you could also just add them and disable them in a hardware switch or something like that, but to say that they're not available at all and that be good is... I I don't get that part. Also, it doesn't come with USB-C or any of that kind of stuff. 
So it's very, very limited in what it offers, and it's also very expensive. And for some reason, I don't get it, but they have a goal of $115,000 and have already reached $85,000 for that goal, which is great, you know, good for them. And if you are interested in checking it out, feel free to do that. I just don't really understand the appeal. So it's it's actually not as powerful as you can just get like a rock chip from the uh, Pine 64. You can get that they have more powerful hardware for that. So I'm not sure why this is so expensive. I do think it's interesting that they use a trackball instead of a trackpad, but they do have an option for trackpad if you want to, but the default one is a trackball. Uh, so I think that's interesting. And I also think that the re- the replaceable batteries are pretty interesting because they have these uh, LIFEP04 battery cells, which look like gigantic regular batteries. So you can actually replace these batteries individually if one of them goes out rather than having to replace the entire battery structure. Uh, however, the $3 per cell that you'd spend is not that appealing when the laptop itself is $1,500 before you get Wi-Fi. So kind of weird but also kind of interesting at the same time. So that's up to you to decide which one you'd rather get. I, I I couldn't bring myself to spend that much money on a laptop that I have to build myself or even more to get Wi-Fi and also still not get a camera, a webcam or anything. It just seems like it's, it's, try, it's a solution for a problem that wasn't looking for a solution. You know, like it's, it's like one of those things where it's a solution looking for a problem type thing. And you could say that the open hardware aspect is the reason to get it. The op- the all hardware design files have been released. That is really cool. It also comes preloaded with Debian 11, though Debian 11 is not out yet. And it seems, you know, that they're expecting it to be out by December this year. Maybe it is. I'm not sure. They haven't. Debian does this thing where they don't give release dates. They basically, it's, it's ready when it's ready type of uh, releases. So, you know. It's interesting that they're doing it, though. They also say that it can operate on the open source only components, except for the RAM. So specific features that you can uh, implement or add on also have some closed source aspects. So the you can choose to use the uh, HDMI output, which does require closed source binary blobs to use that, and some other stuff. But so it's mostly open source, open hardware, but not completely. And it's not really practical to do that for many reasons. But um, I, I, I just, I'm just, it's just hard for me to grasp why this is appealing because you can look at the Pinebook Pro, which is uh, comparable in terms of power and everything, and also costs two hundred dollars versus the fifteen hundred dollars, and you still, then that's that's only until you get Wi-Fi. Or $1,000 to build it yourself and put it together, but uh, I don't know. I like the idea of building myself, but not for that much money. Like, if you did a kit that incorporated, like, a Rock Pro 64 um, or a, you know, RK3399 or something else, or even a, you know, more of the higher-powered uh, Raspberry Pis or um, a Banana Pi or an Odroid or any of those kinds of things, it's more interesting for that than all this other stuff, to me anyway. So... Yeah, if you want to contribute to this campaign, feel free. I'll have a link in the show notes below. But uh, I don't get it because fifteen hundred dollars before you get Wi-Fi seems a bit much for me. But if you would like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below.
Up next in the show is a project that is a manually tiling window manager, and it has their latest release of 0.8.2. And this is actually one of those projects. I have two projects that I like to send to people who talk about the pronunciation of project names and how it's not that hard. And sometimes it is, it can be hard. And sometimes there's really no way to know and to guess. You know, you have to just ask the project how to say it. So when that topic comes up, this is one of the two I like to send to people, and it is called Herbsluft VM. So this is how you pronounce this project, uh, but if you look at the, the video version or if you look at the show notes, how to spell that one, you wouldn't automatically assume that it's how it's pronounced. But I contacted the project team to find out how it is pronounced, and that's what it is. The WM is VM because it's a German team and it's a German term, and its pronunciation of the rest of it is Herbsluft. So let's continue on after the pronunciation part. <laughs> so this is a manual tiling window manager for X11 using Xlib. It is released under the simplified BSD license. And it has a layout that is based on splitting frames into subframes, which can be split again or can be filled with windows. It has a tagging system, but in their, their terms of tags, alerts, re, re, not read relates to workspaces and virtual desktops, and you can add these and remove them at runtime, and each tag can contain its own layout, or each workspace contains its own layout. And exactly one tag is viewed on each monitor, and these tags are independent of the monitor, so you can actually you know, change the different monitor, or change the tag or workspace depending on the, the monitor, so you don't actually have like some DEs where you change to a workspace, it changes all monitors. This way it's independent, so you can switch them whenever you want in, you know, individually. Uh, it's also configured at runtime via IPC calls from Herb's client. Herb's client, I don't know. So the configuration file is just a script which runs at startup, similar to other window managers. And these new features of this version has a selection of empty frames by the mouse. Uh, a lot of this is mouse related. So also the decoration window allows focusing, moving, and resizing the client via the mouse. And they've also improved the Herb's client tab completion for the fish shell. So if you'd like to learn more about this at this window manager, I think it's pretty interesting. It's also a fun a little piece of this pronunciation thing. Because I kind of point out, like, I have a series on my channel where I talk about the pronunciation of projects in Linux, and I should bring that back soon. This would probably be a very good one to be on there. But uh, if in, if you're wondering, again, Herbsluft VM is how you say this one. I think. I might have butchered the actual pronunciation of the dialect of the German word, but that's what it's supposed to be. I hope. I hope I did it right. But... I know it's close. It's definitely close. So anyway, if you're a part of that project, feel free to let me know if I butchered it or not. Uh, I hope I didn't. I'm pretty sure I didn't, but you never know. Also, just a quick note from Connection from the last episode, the 0.8.2 release. Uh, just a quick note, you know, maybe consider bumping it up to one point something or, you know, because that term, that versioning scheme looks like it's, you know, in beta and not really usable. So just a quick note there, if you want to learn more about that, feel free to check out the episode of 102 where I talk about that in more specific uh, descriptions and details. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes below if you'd like to check out more about why you should upgrade, up, bump up your versioning scheme. 
Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Herbsluft VM, I have a link to that in the show notes. Up next in the show is NOAF to do or NOAF to do. Not sure how you're supposed to say this one. Uh, this is an incurses to do manager. It's written in C and uses incurses. And I saw this on Reddit recently, and I wanted to kind of put it on the show because it has a fun name and also it looks pretty interesting. And I also like the incurses usage. We'll get to that in a second. But the NOAF to do means this is a to do manager that no one asked for. So NOAF is no one asked for. I think that's pretty fun because I've seen a lot of projects that have, you know, pretty lazy names like yet another anything. If you have yet another, it means that you have the laziest, absolute laziest way of naming a project because you don't actually have a name for it. And in this case, he doesn't have a name for it, but also is having fun with that fact rather than doing the yet another, which is fantastic. Please don't use yet another ever again. Everyone just. Anything else is better. But this one is an incurses to-do manager that no one asked for or know of to-do, written by Greg the Mad Monk, which is a fantastic name too. And this is the, the features of this is a command-driven, minimalistic interface written with incurses. So if you don't know what incurses is, it's a toolkit for developing GUI-like application software that runs under terminal emulators. So it's kind of like a GUI, but not exactly. It doesn't, it, you know, it's not an actual GUI, but it has GUI-like functionality inside of the terminal, which I think is really nice. And it does actually have quite a few cool features. So it has the multiple lists between which tasks can be moved. It has a pr- primitive to-do list management uh, that they, they describe it as primitive primitive because it's a pretty new project. They, they give you options to add and remove tasks, also using due dates. You can mark tasks as completed. You can filtering. You can use a filtering system that displays uh, failed to dos, uh, completed, upcoming, and uncategorized tasks. I think it's kind of funny to have a failed to da- failed group. Uh, they also have a daemon that can work in the background and track task to dos and completion, and is able to execute custom commands on certain events like sending notifications and stuff like that. It also allows you to have customized like key binding and short configurable shortcuts and that kind of stuff too. I think it's a really cool, uh, fun project. Uh, I like the name. I also like the idea of doing incurses to in- use it. So you have, there's a lot of to-do apps that there's multiple to-do apps that are command line driven, but the interface of them is kind of torturous. So I like the combination of having a t- terminal-based command line to-do app system that also has a sort of GUI-like interface. So pretty cool. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to know of to do in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the housekeeping section, and we're going to start it off with front page Linux. If you have not heard of it, front page Linux is an article, news, opinions, tutorials, video site, like all kinds of stuff that is created by the Destination Linux network. And we built this to provide a place for people to uh, promote uh, content and provide uh, you know news for people. If you are keeping up with news and you'd like to pr- uh, submit, you can do so. Actually, if you want to submit anything, whether it's an article, it's news, a tutorial, or anything like that, you can do so by going to frontpagelinux.com. Click on the contact section and you will find the way 
to submit. And this is a really cool thing because it is an open source approach to a news site or article site. And I think it's awesome. Maybe you do too. If you'd like to, to, to become a part of the community that participates on Front Page Linux, you, like, you, like I said, you can go to frontpagelinux.com and click on the contact section. And also for people who have done that, there are a lot of cool content on there. So we have uh, Jason Evangelo from Destination Linux a network who he's the podcast host of Linux for everyone. He also writes for Forbes and is now also writing for front page Linux. So you can check out his latest uh, article called from, from Lenovo would love how Fedora ThinkPads will treat Linux as a first class citizen. That is a really cool article. It has something that is a very exciting news from Lenovo. So definitely check that out. Also check out Eric Londo's Linux plus plus. He create, he creates a weekly, uh, kind of a column magazine-esque type thing. Not really sure how to describe it exactly right now, but it's really cool. It's Linux++, and it talks about some news, talks about community-related things, and also does interviews and some cool like desktop spotlights and stuff like that, like uh, desktop of the week and that kind of thing. But this week, we have an interview with Philip Mueller of Manjaro, so be, be sure to check that out. I have a link to that in the show notes, as well as Jason's article in the show notes as well, and just the direct front page Linux link if you want to check that out and check out all the different content that's on the website. And if you'd like to become part of that website, be sure to get in touch with us because it's awesome. It'd be awesome if you helped join the community and everything. So do that if you want to. That was a great, great ending piece right there. Good job, Michael. Good job. Up next in the housekeeping, we have Destination Linux Podcast. So Destination Linux is a podcast that I am on with Ryan and Noah, and it's really awesome. We have guests every every now and then periodically, and actually for quite a lot these recent episodes. So you can check out episode 171 of Destination Linux. We discuss the latest release of Ubuntu 2004 and Lenovo's announcement about shipping with Fedora. And we also were joined by Jill Bryant Reinecker from Linux Gamecast, where we interview her about her journey into Linux, as well as dive into some pop culture where we have a discussion about Star Trek. And uh, also she put, she kind of puts Ryan and myself in our place relating to being a big Trekkie. So we need to step up our game on that. But it is a really awesome interview and a really awesome discussion to have her on the show. So be sure to check it out. Uh, uh, Destination Linux 171 with Jill Bryant Reinecker. Uh, we also had Destination Linux 172 with Rocco of Big Daddy Linux Live and Linux Spotlight. And we talk about swap partition and swap files. We talk about the Ubuntu 2004 remixes, Google Stadia, the Tor project, and many more things. And also Noah and I have an interesting debate about being open-minded. And it's kind of hard to explain that, but check it out. Episode 172 of Destination Linux. And finally, episode 173 that is coming out this week in just a couple days or so. Uh, it'll be Wednesday of this week. Uh, and it'll have uh, a really interesting conversation we had with, uh, it was actually a, a, one of our famous in-depth interviews that we do. Uh, Tamika Reed and Dee Parler from the organization Women in Linux joined us for this episode. So be sure to check that out when it comes out this week, episode 173 of Destination Linux. And the last bit of housekeeping, I just wanted to give a big thanks to the 79 patrons of Tux Digital. I want to thank you so much for helping me make this content because it is impossible to do it without you. So I am so appreciative that you were, you, you think it's good, you know, that my content is good enough to help me make it. So I appreciate it so much. 
Uh, and if you'd like to help make this show possible, you can consider becoming a patron of Tux Digital. By becoming a patron, you not only help me directly finance the creation of this show and all the other content on the channel, you also get special rewards like joining me in the new patrons chat live stream that we're going that we do monthly. And also it is happening this, like I said earlier in the show, this week, this Saturday, May 16th. 12 p.m. Eastern. If you'd like to be a part of that, then become a patron of Tux Digital and you can be there and participate in the on-screen part of the stream. That's a lot. That's a weird sentence to say, but uh, you can do that by becoming a patron of Tux Digital. And again, I want to thank all the awesome 79 patrons of Tux Digital for helping me make this content because it is amazing that you, uh, you know, help me. I don't know. I, I can't really express it that well. But I, 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 I thank you so much for doing it. And I, like I said, previous episodes, I can't really thank you enough, but I will continue to try. Up next in the show is some interesting news for the Linux market share, actually seven times increase this past month. So this is related to information from NetMarketShare, a company that keeps track of what operating systems people use on the internet. But this doesn't like contain everything, obviously. It only records devices that are online and certain access certain websites. But the sample size is large enough to give us a decent idea of how the market share exists. So it's about 40,000 websites that are included in this. So the data can be skewed since we don't know what the websites are included or exactly how many. But they do say that it's around 40,000, which is a significant sample size. So they say that uh, Microsoft Windows dropped from 57.34% in March to 56.08% in April. And this is uh, another thing that dropped was Windows 7. That's not really surprising, but it dropped market share from 26.23% to 25.59%. So not a great month for Microsoft in this case, which is fantastic. Uh, It's not good for them, but good for everybody else. And uh, the third most used PC operating system is now Apple's macOS 10.15 or Catalina for macOS. Uh, it went from 3.4% or 4, 3.41% to 4.15%. Also, in the Ubuntu got a big leap from 0.27% in March to 1.8% in April. And you combine Ubuntu's with all the other distros, or we don't really know exactly. They don't break it down to all of the distros and specifically, but they do, you know, break it down to a Linux version. Says that Linux has 2.86%, which is quite a big jump, and that's fantastic. Uh, with many businesses closing their offices, there's some theory that the employees from working from home might be using uh, Linux on their laptops or PC instead, or maybe even Mac. Uh, but uh, they say that while businesses are overwhelmingly using Windows 10 on their machines, uh, Tech Radar says that it appears individuals are becoming more interested in using macOS and Linux, which is fantastic. And it actually does make a lot of sense because a lot of the times people they they don't even say when they say that only when you know accessed online. So when someone's online, that's how they do the testing. But maybe people are. You know, using they're only doing the testing during work hours or something like I don't know. It's kind of like, a, you know, hit and miss type of information because we don't really know how useful this info is from this company. But they are used a lot in metrics for many years. So it's still a good information to know that the you know, that's it's a good sample size because oftentimes when you see market share discussed, it's from net market share. So 
it's still really interesting that there like there is this big jump that's seven times increase. So very, very cool. Uh, I think this will be interesting to see how this data continues to come in the coming months. Like maybe it will be more people using it, you know, Linux and Mac because they're not working from their offices and that kind of thing. I'm very curious to see what happens, you know, in the coming months because of all this crazy nonsense that we're dealing with. Uh, but yeah, uh, there's, I guess some, sort of uh, positive news on that pay- that case. But yeah, Linux market share, seven times increase. That is awesome. And if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the Tech Radar post about this in the show notes below. Up next in the show is an interesting interview with L or Odidniriel. I'm sorry. I totally butchered that. I knew I was going to. I tried, but I know I butchered it. So this is from Libra Graphics World. This is an interview with a GIMP core developer. Uh, we're just going to go by L at this point. And this is about how he got started with working in GIMP, uh, whether he thinks C is a bad choice for GIMP or not, whether he thinks that rewriting, he actually says it'd be kind of crazy to rewrite GIMP. Uh, but he also talks about like the values of rewriting certain pieces and de- depending on what they, the addition is, because some stuff has been added that is C++ based. And he talks about that in the in the uh, interview. And he also talks about the goals for the future of GIMP and some of these things that I I'm hoping they do. Uh, there talks about vector layers and a bunch of other stuff. But the most important thing for me is the non-destructive editing part. And they are you know working on doing that sometime in the future. We don't really know when that's going to happen. There are some uh, estimates that 3.0 will introduce that and that kind of thing, but we don't know how long that will be. Uh, but I think this is an in- a very interesting interview. If you'd like to learn more abo- about GIMP and how it's made and that kind of thing, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes to this interview if you'd like to check it out. But hopefully the non-destructive aspects will come as soon as possible because that is the fundamental reason why I don't use it. So please add that as soon as possible. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more, I have a link to the interview uh, from the Libra Graphics World in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a topic that I said I didn't want to talk about for a very long time, but it's back in the news, and that is Munich talking about Linux and open source code and that kind of stuff. It says that they have agreed, uh, there's a coalition for agreement in Munich that it commits to the principle of public money, public code. Now, this is a initiative we'll talk about later on, but I'll have a link to that stuff in the show notes as well. But the Free Software Foundation Europe, uh, President Matthias Kirschner. Let me know how badly I butchered that. He summarized this in this way. He says that the FSFE uh, saw, uh, welcomes the public money, public code policy by the new Munich government after the last government of SPD and CSU had distanced itself from the prior progressive free software strategy that it is now a positive si- signal again. Uh, Public administrations following the principles of public money, public code can benefit from collaboration with other public bodies, independence from single vendors, potential tax savings, increased innovation, and a better basis for IT security. Now, you might be wondering why I don't really want to talk about it, because if you're new to the show, uh, we've talked about Munich multiple times on this show because they originally in 2003 announced that they were going to be uh, switching to Linux as their and they built their own desktop environment. Not on, no, they built their own distro called Limux and some other stuff. And they did this because of the ending of the support for uh, Windows uh, NT 4.0, which they were using at the time. So this was they basically created like a testing to find out if it would be worth doing and, you know, trying to switch over to open source operating systems and all this uh, open source software and all that kinds of stuff. 
and a majority of the council members voted for the Linux-based solution, which they then dubbed Linux, like I said. And they uh, did all this and launched the, the, the efforts in 2004 in order to migrate from Windows to their own Linux-based uh, desktop in- infrastructure. But uh, in the future, it comes out with like some negative. A couple of years ago, there was some negative press about this, but you know we'll get to that in a second. But in 2009, in May 2009, they announced that 1,800 workstations were converted to Linux. 12,000 received um, 12,000 received Open Office, and by October 2013, the city of Munich had migrated over 15,000 desktop PCs to Linux. And the usability project or project project group interviewed users uh, regularly to achieve a good fit for the needs of the users. And they say that it was first based on Debian, then later on Ubuntu. And but the most important piece here is that the claims that you would save money is not only like obviously accurate, but they we we have a definitive example of how they saved money. So Munich City reported that due to the project and the migration. And this stuff that they gained from the freedom of the software decisions is that they had increased security and saved 11.7 million euros or 16 million dollars in U.S. dollars. But then they get the, the mayor at the time who was doing kind of for uh, front running this whole uh, process uh, is now, it becomes no longer the mayor and they get a new mayor who essentially decides to ruin everything and go back to Windows because it, it apparently seems like there was a, a Microsoft, he was a Microsoft fanboy or something and arbitrarily decided to do it. So in 2014, this new mayor, um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to bother saying his name because I don't care, uh, considered going back to Windows due to alleged productivity problems. However, Stefan Hoff, sorry if I butchered it, the spokesperson for the city, the Munich City Council stated that the majority of the issues stem from compatibility issues in open office, which is something that could easily be solved by switching to LibreOffice. Now, if you're not aware, open office was the main go-to uh, office suite for free software for a long time, but it was essentially killed when Oracle purchased it. When I say essentially, I shouldn't say essentially. I say completely killed by Oracle when they purchased Sun Microsystems because Sun was making OpenOffice. So then LibreOffice becomes a fork of OpenOffice and completely blows it out of the water like very quickly. LibreOffice becomes the standard, uh, the standard option very quickly and OpenOffice becomes a figment of its former self. But... They were still using OpenOffice because they hadn't transitioned over, and they were saying that the compatibility issues that they were experiencing could easily be solved by just switching to the newer forked version. They also say that the head of the municipal IT services, uh, Carl Heinz Schneider, stated that the most things were fine and they had managed to save over 10 million euros, uh, and he emphasized that the number of complaints and malfunctions hadn't exceeded the usual level of any organization of the same size. So, in November 2017, an article by The Registered, which was called Never Go Full Windows, that's a good name, that's a funny name, they detailed the fall of Limex and why the city council was doing this. And essentially, it's because that Microsoft wanted them to do it. And they had uh, personnel and staff like the mayor who helped facilitate this ridiculous decision to move to Windows. So, this is now kind of like a sort of side pivot, I guess, where 
There's a new government in place that is trying to somewhat limit the ridiculous decision that was previously done by the previous government. I don't know. It's it's pretty nonsense and it's very annoying and it's those kinds of things that is just disappointing. But, you know, this has been this is good that they're doing it to a point uh, because now with the coalition of the SPD and the Greens, Munich seems to be back on track by the commitment to the public money, public code initiative, which is good. But the FS, FSFCE, the Free Software Foundation Europe, says that it still leaves uh, the the treaty still leaves room for improvement as it includes some typical loopholes such as the vague limitation to software whose code does not contain personal or confidential data and they also say that it will continue to they will continue to look closely monitoring the progress of the implementation of this policy and how procurement procedures will be handled in the future they close the FSFE close out in this article saying that the public money public code initiative aims to be to set free software as the standard for public finance software because if you're going to pay for the money to be built or you're going to pay for the software to be to be used and built why not make it public so that the if the public is paying for it the public should be able to use the code and benefit from that code and that's what the initiative is for and they say the free software foundation europe together with over 180 civil society organizations and more than 27,000 individuals has signed this open letter and they say that they we will use the signatures to contact decision makers and political representatives all over europe and convince them to make public code the standard and they also say that you are invited to add your signature to the bigger impact to be a make a bigger impact at the website publiccode.eu so if you like to do that Feel free to check it out. But if you'll notice in the the name of this section, uh, if you look at the segment index and that kind of thing, you'll see that it says Munich and Netherlands, or actually Netherlands and Munich, are committing to use public code. And the reason I want to bring, bring it up, because Netherlands also commits to use free software by default. In an open letter to the parliament, the Dutch Minister for Internal Affairs, Raymond Canops, I'm probably not saying that right, commits to a free software by default policy and underlines its benefits for society. Current market relations shall be reworded to allow publishing free software by the government, which this is interesting because in 2017, there was a government ordered inquiry into the options for publishing software under free and open source software licensing. And the report stated that adopting free software could make the government more transparent as well as reduce costs and stimulate the economy. However, there was an issue is that it also underlined the possibility that the government publishing free software could be considered unfair competition under current market regulations and doing so would be legal if the government abided by a very strict set of regulations. So essentially they passed a re-implementation of or changes to the regulations so it made it possible for them to do this, which I think is pretty interesting because, you know, they they, they don't want to compete, but making open source code is not really competing. It's actually facilitating the value of the market. So I don't know, but very awesome. And I'm happy to see that Netherlands is doing this. I'm also happy to see that Munich is somewhat pivoting into the, from the horrible, just ridiculously dumb decision previously into more, you know, good, you know, good changes. Hopefully they'll come back into actually doing it properly and not being ridiculous. But I have very little hopes because it's been many years of them being ridiculous. So we'll see what happens. But welcome to the new frontier, Netherlands, because 
public code will be taking over at some point, and I'm glad to see that you are participating in that change early. So, yeah, if you'd like to learn more about the Netherlands news or the Munich news, I'll have a link in the show notes to the FSFE articles on both of those. I'm next in the show, and the last topic for this week's episode is affiliate links that help this show news. Or it's specifically about Humble Bundle because they have a huge amount of bundles that are currently available that I think a lot are really cool. Uh, so first of all, let's talk about a Humble Book Bundle called the Definitive Guides to All Things Programming by O'Reilly. So O'Reilly has a Definitive Guides Editions book bundle for various different programming things, including ebooks like Spark, the Definitive Guide, Hadoop, the Definitive Guide, JavaScript, the Definitive Guide, CSS, the Definitive Guide, MongoDB, CSS, and many, many more definitive guides. There's actually 15 definitive guides. To say that quite a few times there. <laughs> Another book bundle that they have, if for some reason you want to do this, is learn C Sharp and .NET Core because they have a, a bundle, book bundle by packet that has uh, ebooks like ASP.NET Core 3 and Angular 9, hands-on domain-driven design with .NET Core, and other things like Modern app development with C Sharp 8 and etc. So there's 21 ebooks in that bundle if you want to check that out. And also the next bundle is another book bundle, but the last book bundle, and that is Fun with STEM by Adams Media. So you can dive into fun with science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, which is the the definition, like acronym for STEM. And uh, with a bundle from Adams Media, you get ebooks like Everything STEM Handbook, Physics of Star Wars. Science experiments and 100 things to see in the night sky, as well as many more, up to 36 ebooks in this bundle. Next up, we have some games bundles, and this is first of all, it's a board games bundle by Osmodi Digital, and this is the Play with Friends bundle. It's you can get a Scythe a Digital Edition, the Lord of the Rings Adventure Card Game, Splendor, Mysterium, Small World Tour, to, Small World Two. And Carcassonne, Car Carcassonne, Carcassonne, I don't know, something like that. Uh, I've actually not played any of these games except for Splendor. I have played Splendor, and it is quite good. I'm a big fan of Splendor. Um, there's also, uh, these games are not necessarily all Linux-based. There's three that are native-based Linux, that, but there are a lot of them that work on uh, Proton. So the Mysterium Scythe, the Lord of the Rings uh, Adventure Card Game, those are all platinum uh, Proton games, and there's also multiple, there's four gold ones, uh, Carcassonne, uh, one called Love Letter, Twilight Struggle, and Splendor is available on Proton with a gold rating. So if you'd like to check that out, I have a link in the show notes for that bundle as well. And another bundle, this is the uh, two more bundles. One is the Big Music Bundle for games, films, and content creators. It adds, uh, gives you options to get like ambiance music and stuff like that for video games, movies, and many more. Up to 8 gigs of music with over uh, 300 different music tracks. It comes with 15 different music packs with mystical game music, medieval adventure game music, cosmos music, heavy riffs, space adventure, and more. Uh, and the last comic, the last bundle is a Humble's, Humble Comics bundle. Uh, this is really cool because if you've ever watched the show Walking Dead, this is a show that is based on the comic book of the same name, The Walking Dead, and it's made by Image Comics. And what's cool about it is that this Humble Bundle has the entire series 
if you want to get it. So that's 36 volumes, 193 issues, the entire full set of the Walking Dead comics available in this bundle if you want to check it out. Uh, the show is the show was okay. The first season was good, and then it kind of started eh. But the comic is actually quite good. I'm a, I'm a fan of the comic, uh, but I would say that it is very gruesome, so you might want to make sure that kids don't get it um, because it is, it is kind of gruesome. Lots of bundles to check out for Humble Bundle. And also, just a quick note, uh, if you're not aware, these are all affiliate links. So if you click any links below, I'll get a small percentage of the uh, you know, the cost of the thing. So you, it doesn't cost you any extra to do it. It's just a small percentage for me to sending you to these bundles. So if you do, you'll be helping out the show a lot by, if you're going to purchase any of these bundles to use the links below, because it does help out the Tux Digital channel and the show for this week in Linux, because we'll get a small percentage through the affiliate um, partnership thing. So if you do decide to purchase any of these, please use the link below. I would have very much appreciate that. And yeah, so links below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways you contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And specifically with Patreon and sponsors, you become patrons of the show, which will give you extra benefits that you can learn about in the housekeeping section. There's also other ways to, to contribute to the show. You can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to destinationlinux.network slash store. This is a shirt I made to celebrate the proliferation of Linux, basically saying that Linux is everywhere because it pretty much is. And also it has Tux blended into the background to convey the message that whether you know that Linux is there or not, it probably is. And also the destinationlinux.network slash store is where you can find other items that we have, including a launch part, a launch, a launch concert type style uh, merchandise that is related to the launch of the Destination Linux Network. And also we're going to be launching some other items soon, including the highly requested items related to the stool nonsense from the Destination Linux. If you'd like to know what that means, what the stool references, and then check out episode 152 of Destination Linux by going to destinationlinux.org slash stool. Yep, I did that. For some reason, I made a quick link to the ridiculousness of that episode, so be sure to check it out. Uh, we also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And also be sure to check out the housekeeping section for this episode, where I talk about Destination Linux so you can find out what's the latest episodes and why you should check it out, because it is quite good, if I do say so myself. It is a fantastic show. I'm not biased in any way whatsoever. You should definitely check it out. <laughs> Again... Thanks for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.